Well, every once in a while, there'll be a story in the news about some ridiculous price that a person has paid for, uh, for a beanie baby or a work of art or a birthday bash. So this past week, I googled the most ever paid for, and you fill in the blank, okay? The most ever paid for. And I found six of these that I want to, yeah, I just kind of want to quiz you with. See if you can guess how much has been paid for these six items. So I'll give you them one at a time and give you a few seconds to kind of lock in an amount. What do you think the most ever paid for that item was? Don't call it out, just lock it in. Then I'll give it to you and you can see how close you got. All right, here's the first one. The most ever paid for a car. So what do you think? Answer, $52 million for a 1963 Ferrari. Sue and I have really enjoyed driving that sucker. It's really... (laughs) See, it was one of only... 39 made, okay? The most ever paid for a painting. And if you watch the news this week, you should know the answer to this because it was paid on Wednesday. Okay? $450 million for a newly discovered Leonardo da Vinci portrait of Jesus Christ. The most ever paid for a baseball card. I used to collect baseball cards. I wish I'd had this one. Three million dollars for a 1909 Hannes Wagner. You know who Hannes Wagner was? Probably the greatest shortstop in baseball history. But three million dollars for his baseball card. How about this? The most ever paid for a cow. I'm not not making this one up. 1.2 million dollars for a cow named Missy. She was raised on a farm that specializes in dairy genetics. So she's been raised for breeding purposes. 1.2 million dollars. Okay, here's one not quite as expensive. The most ever paid for a bottle of wine. Okay, you did not get this at Trader Joe's, all right, in the $3 bin. (laughs) $350,000. It's just a regular-sized bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon. Can you imagine serving that to your guests? Like watching them gulp down 10 grand worth of wine. Whoa, whoa. Okay, one final one. The most ever paid for... A ransom. The most ever paid for a ransom. Correct answer, $77 million paid by the richest businessman in China to rescue his son from a kidnapper, a gangster known as Big Spender. Okay, Big Spender now has $77 million more to spend, right? Now, actually, this last one, the, the most ever paid for a ransom is not entirely accurate because I know somebody who paid a bazillion times $77 million to rescue you and me. See, I'm talking about God. You know, the Bible says that God rescued us for the price of his own son's life. The Bible puts it this way in 1 Peter verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of of Christ. It wasn't just money, it was the blood of Christ. God paid with the death of his one and only son to redeem you and me. What was God redeeming us? What was he saving us from? That's going to be the topic of our study today. And why why was he willing to pay such a steep price? To pay with the life of his eternal son. Why? Well, that's the topic of the series that we began last weekend. A seven-part series that's going to take us through the holidays, a series called 
experiencing God's love, God's love. The reason God paid such a high price for our salvation is love. God loves us beyond what we can imagine. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, okay? Get the outline from your program so you could fill it in as we go along. And while you're uh, looking for Romans 5, let me give you some background. Let me give you some context to today's passage. The New Testament epistle, the letter of Romans, was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christ followers in the capital city of the empire in, in, in Rome. Paul had never visited Rome, but obviously the good news about Jesus had traveled to Rome, and people had embraced it. They had surrendered their lives to Christ. A church had been started, and that church was meeting in several different locations around the city, much like Christ Community Church, one church in four locations for us. Okay, now, Christianity was not a tolerated religion in the Roman Empire at the time, and so these Christ followers were beginning to experience some persecution for their faith. Okay, in addition to that, they faced all the difficulties of life that you and I face. You know, relational conflicts and financial problems and health issues and, and, and so on. So some of them were beginning to question, does God care for us? I mean, here, here we've begun to follow Jesus, but does God care? I thought he's supposed to love us. Okay, we're, we're not feeling the love. Where's the love? Maybe you felt that way before. Maybe you're in that spot today. Because of difficulties in your life, you're wondering, oh, where, where is God's love? Where's God's love? And Paul writes Romans to tell us, you know, if you, if you base your sense of God's love on your feelings, how you're feeling today, what you're going to discover is that feelings fluctuate. They're up and they're down. And so your sense of God's love is going to come and go. Not good to base your sense of God's love on subjective feelings. Paul says in Romans 5, let me, let me give you some, some objective evidence to base it on. Let me give you some irrefutable facts that you could take to the bank. This is how you know God loves you. What, what is this objective fact? It's the fact that he paid such a steep price for your salvation. The, the key verse, I'm going to pull it out out of the middle of the passage right now. We're going to look at the passage as a whole in a few moments, but verse 8, it's a it's a verse worth memorizing. Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know if God loves you? God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Why did Christ die for us? Because God loves us. The irrefutable proof of God's love for us is the incredibly high price he paid for our salvation. Now, let me unpack that truth. If you're following in your outline, this is point number one. Whom did God save? Whom did he save? And there are four expressions in today's passage, Romans 5, that describe who we are before God saves us. Okay, who we are before God saves us. And it's, it's not a pretty picture. It's, it's not a, a complimentary picture of, of who we are. Let me give you the four words, then we'll see them in the text. The four words are ungodly, sinners, God's enemies, and powerless. Ungodly, sinners, God's enemies, powerless. Let me read the text beginning at verse 6. If you've got your own Bible, you want to underline these words as we come across them. 
You see, at just the right time, Paul writes, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Four expressions, ungodly, sinners, God's enemies, powerless. This is not the portrait of ourselves we carry around in our own minds, is it? But it's the picture that God's word paints of us before God saves us. Uh, There's a story about Winston Churchill. Uh, You may be familiar with this story if you're one of the fans of the Netflix series, The Crown, uh, because the story was told in episode nine of season one. Okay, Winston Churchill, of course, was one of the greatest prime ministers in Great Britain's history. He took them through the Second World War, an amazing leader. In 1954, as he approached his 80th birthday, Parliament decided to honor him with having a full-size, full-length portrait painted of him by one of England's most famous artists, a guy by the name of Graham Sutherland. Now, Graham Sutherland was was noted for his realistic approach to painting portraits. He, He wanted to capture the real person. Trouble was, Winston Churchill did not want a realist picture of himself. He wanted an idealist picture of himself. As he he told Sutherland he wanted to be standing ramrod straight, dressed in the robe of a royal knight, with a look of triumph on his face. And instead, Sutherland painted him slouched in a chair, okay, with a, a his typical trademark scowl on his face, and dressed in a ordinary suit and tie. When the, the portrait was unveiled, Winston Churchill was furious. He hated it. And he got into an argument with Sutherland. He said, You make me look old. Sutherland said, you are old, 80 years old. Winston Churchill said, you're painting the prime minister of Great Britain. Sutherland said, I'm painting you. I'm painting you. Now, as the story goes, Churchill took the portrait home and he later burned it. Romans 5 gives us an accurate picture of who we are before God saves us. We might not like it. We we might prefer an idealized portrait of ourselves. But here's the truth about ourselves, friends, in four expressions. The first, ungodly. Ungodly. Look at verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, and I'll come back to powerless in a moment, Christ died for the ungodly. What does this word ungodly mean? It means just what it says, ungodly. Okay, we, we are the antithesis. We are the exact opposite of everything that God is. Are you old enough to remember that 1980s TV commercial about 7-Up when they started calling it the Uncola? Remember that, the Uncola? There was this smooth-talking Caribbean dude dressed in a white suit, and he held up a cola nut, a dark brown, dirty cola nut, and he contrasted it with a fresh lemon and lime with which they make 7-Up. Okay, 7-Up is nothing like the nasty colas. It's the Uncola. See, by way of contrast... You and I are the nasty colas, friends. We're nothing like God. 
He's nothing like us. We are ungodly. Around Christ Community Church, we like to sing a song, one of my favorite worship songs. The lyrics go like this. There is darkness in my heart. You are light. I am infinitely weak. You are might. I have no understanding. You are wise. I'm of this earth below. You're glorified. Second verse. You are holy. I'm prone to sin. You're eternal. I begin and end. You're all compassionate. I'm unkind. You see and know it all. I'm blind. And then the chorus begins. Everything I am not. Oh, great God, you are. In every way, we are worlds apart. In every way, we are worlds apart. Character-wise, in every way, we're worlds apart from God. We are ungodly. Second, we're sinners. Go back to Romans 5. Pick it up in verses 7 and 8. Paul says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners. The verb sin means to miss the mark. To sin is to fall short of God's standards. Now, God's standards are pointed out throughout the pages of Scripture, but if you want a condensed version of God's standards, you could go to Exodus 20 and read the Ten Commandments. So how do we measure up against God's standards as revealed in the Ten Commandments? Uh, most people today don't know the Ten Commandments. So let me do a quick run-through, a quick scrolling through the Ten Commandments, and let's see how we do. Are we the good people we like to think of ourselves as being, or are we, as Paul calls us, sinners? Okay, Commandments number one and two, they tell us that God is to be the only God in our lives. He's to be our number one priority. You know, we're to find our significance, our security, our satisfaction, first and foremost in God every day of our lives, not in our job or our kids or our favorite sports team or a girlfriend or a ski trip or whatever. God is to be number one, significance, security, satisfaction. How are we doing so far? Commandment number three tells us to never, never use God's name lightly. Never use it as an expletive. Never use it as an exclamation, OMG. N never use Christ's name. Call yourself by Christ's name a Christian Christian and then not live up to it. Never. Commandment number four tells us to set aside one day a week, it's called the Sabbath, to focus on God. One day a week when you gather for worship and Bible teaching and hanging out with other believers and you never miss it. Commandment number four. Commandment number five tells us to always honor our mom and our dad, to give our parents our time, our attention, our affection, our respect, always. Commandment number six tells us to not murder. You get to number six and you think, finally, here's one I've obeyed. All right? Not so fast in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said that anyone who is angry or hateful toward another person is guilty of murder. Yeah, ever been angry or hateful toward somebody? So, so, so even if we don't pull out a gun and shoot them, we, we could murder their reputation with gossip. We could murder their self-esteem with verbal abuse. We could murder their acceptance in the community or at school with our racial prejudice. 
Commandment number seven tells us to not commit adultery. This is another one that Jesus intensified in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said not to engage in sexual fantasizing of any sort, lust. Okay, not to engage in fantasizing with somebody who, who you're not married to. That's viewing pornography, that's sleeping with your boyfriend, that's flirting with a coworker, whatever. Jesus sets the standard really high. Commandment number eight tells us to not steal. You say, well, I've never knocked off a bank. Well, yeah, think of all the ways we steal. You claim credit for somebody else's work. Or you get answers off a fellow student's test paper. Or you pirate music on the internet. Or you rob others of joy with your grumpiness. You ever done that? You ever steal somebody's joy by being grumpy? Cheating on taxes, that would be stealing, wouldn't it? Commandment number, number nine tells us to always tell the truth, always. No exaggeration to make a point, no flattery to get somebody to like you, no white lies to you know, get yourself out of trouble, no promises that you don't intend to keep, always the truth. Commandment number 10 warns us against coveting. This is a broad term that means just wanting more or wanting better. I mean, I think Christmas is more than a month away yet, and already the advertisers are telling us what we need to want, you know, by way of clothes and pickup trucks and vacation cruises, cable, movies, concert tickets, smartphones, you name it. Got to have more. So how are we doing with the Ten Commandments? Did, did that survey convince you that you're a basically good person, or are you, like me, just a typical sinner? Just a typical sinner with lots of frequent flyer miles. See, ungodly, sinners. The third description of the kind of people who need saving, Paul says, we're God's enemies. Go back to Romans 5, pick it up at verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Who needs saving? God's enemies. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're, you're thinking, you know, ungodly, guilty, sinner, guilty, God's enemy, no, no, yeah, I've always liked God. God has never been my enemy. But, but here's the rub, friends. All those sins that we just identified in our lives as we scroll through the Ten Commandments, where do you think they come from? They, they come from a determination on our part to run our own lives. God is not going to tell us what to do. Okay, God's not going to tell us what we can say or what we can't say. God's not going to tell us who we can sleep with. God is not going to tell us how to spend our money. Those are our decisions. Really. Because the God of the Bible is frequently described as a great king. The king of our lives. So if we're usurping his place, if we're pushing him off the throne so that we can rule, we can call the shots, what does that make us? Rebels, mutineers, enemies. So ungodly, sinners, enemies. A fourth and final expression that describes the sort of person who God saves, and I skipped this one earlier. We're going to go back to it in verse 6. Let me read that verse to you again. You see it just the right time. 
when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Powerless. What that means is that we lack the ability to save ourselves. It means that no amount of good deeds, no amount of charitable giving or church attendance or social concern can erase the fact that we are ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. We can't save ourselves. Only God can save us. Number two, so what does God's salvation accomplish? What does God's salvation accomplish? Accomplish. The Bible uses some big words to describe what salvation accomplishes for those who surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. What is meant by these big words? We're going to take a look at three of them, and theologians have written entire books on each of these three words. Okay, so the first word is the word justification. What does justification mean? We'll go back to verse 9. I want to read it to you from the text. Opening line, Paul says, since we have now been justified by his blood, Christ's blood, we have now been justified. Justification. It was a legal term in Paul's day. It came from the law courts. Okay, justification meant to declare a person righteous, to declare a person righteous. Now, you and I have, have a problem, friends. We're not righteous. Okay, our scrolling through the Ten Commandments just proved we're, we're sinners, and, and that's terrible news because the Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. God is a just God. Justice is part of his very character. So God must punish wrongdoing. And the punishment is death. If that sounds severe to you, let me remind you that God is the giver of life. So when we separate and go our own ways, when we disconnect from the source of life, the consequence is death. But because of his great love for us, God sent his eternal son to the planet. Jesus lived a perfect life and then laid down his life on the cross. Why? To pay the penalty for our sin. The penalty's death. Jesus took the penalty our sins deserve. If you surrender your life to Jesus, he's able to forgive you because he paid your sin's penalty. He's able to wipe your slate clean. This is the first half of justification. You say, wait a minute, the first half? Well, why is it only the first half? Well, because all I've told you so far is that, you know, you've come to a neutral state. When you surrender to Christ, he wipes the slate clean. The sins are removed. But what's been put in the sin's place? This is the good news about Jesus. This is the good news about Jesus. When Jesus laid down his life on the cross, he not only took away the guilt of our sin if we surrender to him, he also replaced our sins with his righteousness. He replaced our sins with his righteousness. Remember the definition of justification to declare a person righteous? He not just forgiven, but righteous. Where where does this righteousness come from? Let me read you what the Apostle Paul says about this in another one of his New Testament epistles. This is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says, God made him, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. Okay, he got our sin. So that in him, this is the second half of justification, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, justification is the greatest exchange we could ever engage in. It's our sins in exchange for Christ's righteousness. 
Let, let me visualize what we're talking about here. This is so tremendous. I want it to stick in your brain, okay? This is a oh, handsome guy. Um, this is my sin, okay? When I surrendered my life to Jesus, and by the way, my sin would be a whole lot heavier than this. When I surrendered my life to Jesus, what I did, friends, is I gave him all my sins. And he paid for them on the cross. He took the, the penalty is death. He took the penalty my sins deserve. But that's only half a justification. Here's the other half of that good news. Jesus gave me his righteousness. All the righteousness of Jesus was credited to my account when I surrendered my life to him. All of it. All of Jesus' moral purity, all of his love, all of his kindness, all of his faithfulness, all of his self-control, it was all credited to my account. This is justification. Yeah. <laughs> it is appropriate to cheer for that, isn't it? And this is part of God's plan for my life. Now, salvation plan. Here's a second word you need to know, and it's the, it's the, the word salvation itself. Salvation is the noun form of the word, but I want to take a look at the verb as it pops up a couple of times in Romans 5. Take a look at the second half of verse 9. Paul is talking about what Jesus' death on the cross has accomplished, and he says, how much more shall we be saved you can circle that word, saved from God's wrath through him. Now drop down to the second half of verse 10. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved, there you see it again, circle it, saved through his life, through Jesus' life. Saved. Salvation. What is it we're saved from? Well, go back to verse 9. Saved from God's wrath. Now, this is a topic that Christians like to avoid. God's wrath, God's anger, we're, we're kind of embarrassed by it. Uh, anger seems so inappropriate for God. It seems to be at odds with God's love and his kindness, so let's just ignore God's wrath. But the trouble with that is you, we, we can't ignore it because you find it throughout Scripture, New Testament as well as Old Testament. And what we learn is that wrath is a byproduct of God's holiness, God's justice, you see, because God hates sin, God gets angry. He gets angry at people who engage in that. Now, now, why should that sound so strange to us? Don't we all feel the same way? Don't we all get justifiably angry with people who, let's say, abuse children? Or people who get drunk and drive and they kill somebody? Or people who set off a bomb at a public place? Or people who cheat the elderly out of their life savings? Doesn't sin make us justifiably angry? You say, well, some sin does. I mean, the really bad stuff, but not all sin. Really? So you think we reserve the right to say which sins it's okay to be angry about and which sins get a free pass? Okay, if that's the, the way it works, here's what I think. I think all your sins ought to be punished and my, mine ought to get the free pass. Now, we ought to get angry about your sins, not about mine. So, well, what makes us think that we have the moral ability to rate sins? We're all so seriously flawed. But God is perfectly holy. Which is why every sin is offensive to him. Every sin stirs up God's wrath. And listen, friends, that wrath, 
will be directed at us one day when we stand before God at the ultimate judgment unless, unless, unless we've surrendered to Jesus Christ. Because you see, if we've surrendered to Christ, then God's wrath against our sin, listen to this, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus at the cross. This is an amazing truth. A theologian has said, you want to see the love of God? Look at the cross. You want to see the wrath of God? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. What are we saved from? Salvation means that we're saved from God's righteous anger and God's eternal judgment because Jesus took it in our place. Here's a third big word. In today's Romans 5 passage, reconciliation. The verb form of this word pops up twice in verse 10, so circle it a couple of times. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Reconciliation is a relational word. A relational word. Now, uh, people who are not Christ followers are sick and tired of hearing from those of us who are about a personal relationship with God because they think, I don't know, they think it sounds so, so trite or quaint or cheesy or glib, but it's not. It, it's, it's, it's meaningful and intimate and life-changing, a relationship with God. Now, the truth of the matter is, in, in most most other religions, a personal relationship with God is never mentioned. And the reason it's never mentioned is because it's just assumed that God doesn't strike up friendships with mere mortals. But Christianity from the get-go, from the opening pages of the Bible, tells us that God created us for the very purpose of fellowship. God created us because he wants a friendship with us. But this again is where sin ruins everything. Sin alienates us from God and God from us. Sin breaks all communication with this holy God. You know, the, the, the prophet Isaiah, he addressed this problem because uh, centuries ago people were complaining that God didn't seem to hear their prayers. And Isaiah says to them, Isaiah 59, 2, he says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. You want to know why communication is broken down with God? Paul, uh, Isaiah says... Because of your sin, it gets in the way. It's, it's a wall, brick wall. Sin destroys our opportunity to experience a personal relationship with a holy God. But Jesus took care of our sin on the cross. Jesus made friendship with a holy God a real possibility for all who surrender their lives to him. And that is reconciliation. What is God's salvation accomplish it accomplishes justification because Jesus takes our sin and we get his righteousness it accomplishes salvation from God's wrath because all of God's wrath is poured out on Jesus at the cross all the anger at our sin is poured out on Christ it accomplishes reconciliation it makes friends out of those who were former enemies with God number three what did it cost God to do all this? What did it cost God to save us? And we've been reading the answer to that question over and over again in Romans 5. It was Jesus' death 
on the cross. That's what it cost God to save us, Jesus' death on the cross. Now, I've taught you to look for repeating words, repeating ideas whenever you're reading a passage from the Bible. So if your Bible's open to today's text, verses 6 through 11, note how many times the Apostle Paul uses the word die or died or death. Just just underline them in in the passage as I go through it. Verse 6, Jesus died for the ungodly. Verse 7, the word die pops up twice. Underline it. Verse 8, second half of the verse, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There it is again. Verse 9, doesn't use the word die, but it talks about Christ's blood, which is a reference to his death. So underline blood. Verse 10, middle of the verse, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Die, die, death. Do you want to know how much God loves you? It cost him the death of his son to save you. You want to know how much God loves you? It cost him the death of his son to save you. You want to know how much God loves you? It cost him the death of his son to save you. For God so loved the world... John 3.16, the Bible's most familiar verse says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Now, some critics of Christianity say, well, that's not divine love. That's divine child abuse. Okay, if God sends his eternal Son, Jesus, to the planet to die, deliberately sends him to die, that's reprehensible. That's not love. But what the critics fail to realize is that Jesus, God the Son, participated in that decision. Jesus, out of love for us, if God is motivated by love to send his Son to die, Jesus, motivated by love, comes to take the cross in our place. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, listen to this, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus chose the cross because he loves me. I don't know if you followed the story of Ricardo Perez in the news this week. Ricardo was a TSA officer at the Orlando airport. And there was a big scare at the Orlando airport a few days ago. Uh, Somebody left a backpack in the middle of one of the concourses, and the backpack popped a few times, and then it began to smoke, and everybody ran for cover. They were sure it was a a terrorist's bomb. And so Ricardo walked over, and he picked up the backpack, and he took it over between two sturdy pillars, hoping they would take the brunt of any explosion. Of course, they called him a, a, a hero. It turned out it wasn't a terrorist bomb. It was, uh, you know, the, the camera battery of somebody that had exploded. I guess they have a, a habit of doing this. But they called Ricardo a, a hero, and I watched him interviewed on the news, and he said, I'm not a, not a hero. He said, I thought to myself, if this is an IED, I'm dead, so I might as well try to save a few people along the way. See, Ricardo thought he was a goner. He didn't think he had a choice of life or death. It was death. Jesus had a choice, and Jesus, listen, Jesus chose to lay aside the glory of heaven, and in exchange, he took a torturous death on the cross. And why would he do that? 
to purchase justification, to purchase salvation, to purchase reconciliation for people who are ungodly, sinners, God's enemies, powerless. Wow. What would motivate him to do that? Well, we come full circle to our theme. And it's the fourth point. Why does God save us? Love. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't it interesting? We get amazed when somebody pays $52 million for a sports car or $450 million for a painting. How amazed are we by the fact that God saves us at the price of his own son's life? Does that amaze you today? Does that amaze you? Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you ever received his his gift of righteousness, given him your sins, and in exchange, taken his righteousness? I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to sing a closing song, a song of thanksgiving for God's great love for us. We'll collect our gifts and offerings as we do that. But pray with me right now. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, pray something like this. Oh, Lord God, I'm ungodly. I'm nothing like you. I'm a sinner. When I contemplate the Ten Commandments, I recognize there's not a one I've obeyed. I've been your enemy. Not not because I've overtly hated you, but I see that I've been running my own life. I've deposed you from your throne, and I've taken charge. And right now, I want to repent of all that. I want to put my hope and my trust in Jesus. I want to surrender to him. Can you pray that from your heart right now? If you've never prayed it before, give Jesus your sin and say, and Jesus, because of what you did on the cross, Dying to pay the penalty for my sin, I now receive as the gift you offer your righteousness in exchange. Please credit it to my account. Now, right now, before God, get off the throne of your life. I mean, imagine in your mind, I'm getting off the throne and I'm turning it over to Jesus. I want to learn what it means to follow Jesus. I'm serious about this, Jesus. I want to follow you. Now, if you've already prayed this prayer at some point in the the past and surrendered to Christ, how appropriate on this Thanksgiving week to just be amazed, (laughs) to just be amazed in God's presence at what he paid for your salvation. Thank him from the bottom of your heart right now. And then as we sing this next song together, let, let it come from the depth of your being, how grateful you are for the price that's been paid for your salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen.